Amen. Thanks. Well, as Michael said, we are starting a brand new series on the Lord's Prayer today. And you just heard loads of our church family praying that prayer, praying the Lord's Prayer. Um, Most of them in their native language, their first language. So just a really beautiful, powerful picture of unity and what kind of unity the Lord's Prayer can help give us. But this prayer is taken from Matthew 6 and Luke 11, and it's Jesus's kind of primary teaching on prayer. Now, Jesus was a pretty good prayer, so he could have taught us a lot about prayer, and he could have probably done multitudes of teaching on on all that it is and all the depth of it and, and all this stuff. But when the disciples asked him, what is prayer? How do we pray? Master, teach us how to pray. This was his response. The Lord's Prayer is his response. And so it's an incredibly important prayer for the apostles then and also for us believers now. But I think it's important to note right here at the beginning uh, that we're not saying and Jesus isn't saying that you only pray these 50-odd-ish words and that's it. That's, That's all the prayer you can pray. No, that's, that's not what prayer is. But Jesus is teaching, and we're saying, and hopefully teaching, that there are certain values and principles and heart posture in this prayer that we want to draw out and use in our daily prayer life, okay? So we're going to be going through it line by line, verse by verse, and today we're going to make it through that first line, which is, Our Father. Yes, I am about to preach on two words, an entire sermon on two words. Now, y'all know I love to preach and I love to talk, so we'll see how this goes. Uh, I only have 20 minutes, but I think because it's two words, I can do it. Um, But I really love this opening verse, Our Father. And even though it's only two words, I think it's so key, not just to understanding this prayer, and not even just understanding prayer in general, but this is so key to how we approach God. This is, is a, a key thing that we need to understand so that we know in every dialogue we, ha- we have with the Lord how to come to him. Because he could be known as a lot of things. He has a lot of names. But he chooses to be called our Father. That's what he's longing for. That's what what he wants us to know him as. So let's break this very important verse, this very important phrase down. So we'll start with Father. Now, in our current 21st century Western Christian context, we're pretty comfortable with God as Father, right? Like, you've probably heard him, you know, in prayer referred to as Heavenly Father or Father God, um, If you run in slightly more charismatic circles, you maybe have heard Papa God. Personally, in my quiet time with the Lord, I refer to him as Babo. Um, It's Italian for dad, and it's just like, just a little nickname I have for him, just a little nice thing. Um, But we're we're pretty comfortable with this idea, right? That, That God, yes, is God, God Almighty, creator of the universe, but that he's also our dad, he's father. But this was not normal when Jesus taught this prayer. The apostles were not used to this idea, this 
way of approaching God. And it, it honestly would have been a little scandalous to them to hear Jesus teach them to pray this way. Because that word that we translate as father, it doesn't actually mean father. So it's the word Abba. And a much better translation for Abba is daddy. So Jesus isn't teaching us to connect with the Lord as like this distant father figure or as like a a biological connection or even as like a, a leader figure in our life. He's teaching us to to know the Lord as an intimate relationship. Daddy, Abba, it it speaks to a depth and a closeness. And that's what the Lord is longing for us to come to him as. For us to know that we are, are his favorite kids. That we're sons and daughters of a good dad. Now, I have a really great earthly dad. Um, I love him a lot. I'm sure he's watching this, so hey, dad. Uh, But we have this little thing we do every month just to to connect us across time zones and miles because he's over in America. Um, And it's just a silly little thing we do, but every month on the full moon, without fail, my dad texts me. And it's just a little, happy full moon, Sarah, love you. Like, just a cute little thing, right? And it's just a nice way that I know that my dad loves me. And I know my dad is for me, that he is faithful, that he's steadfast. And I've actually become like pretty dependent and reliant on this text. I know it's coming. I'm waiting for it to come. Like I know I'm going to get that text, right? So a few months back, I was with some friends and, uh, and it was nighttime and one of my friends pointed at the moon and he was like, oh, that full moon is so beautiful. And I was like, it is beautiful, but it's not a full moon. And I knew this because my dad had not yet texted me. So my friend looks at me, and he looks at the moon, and he's like, it it is a full moon. Look at it. It's massive. It's round. It's full. It's a full moon. And I said, yeah. I know it looks like a full moon, but I know for a fact it's not because my dad hasn't texted me. And if it were a full moon, he would have texted. My friend looked at me like I was crazy. Like, he was like, it's okay, whatever. Well, turns out I was right because the next day I got a text from my dad because that was technically the full moon. Now, I was so dependent on that text. I was so certain of my dad's faithfulness to me. I was so certain that my dad was going to come through in the way I knew he would, in the way I always expect him to, that I not only denied my friend and outright told my friend, you're wrong, but I denied my own eyeballs because it looked like a full moon. But I just thought, no, it can't be because I know my dad. I trust my dad, so it it can't be a full moon. And I know some of you are hearing that story, and you're like, well, like, that's cute, but that means nothing because you don't know my relationship with my dad. And I want to just step in and say and, and just tell you that my relationship with my dad was not always that great. 
Like that cute thing we have now, that, that nice dynamic, that trust that we have now, that was not always the case. There were years where I didn't trust him. And it is entirely because of Jesus, because he walked with me through the journey and he taught me forgiveness and grace and humility and communication skills. And so, it's, I mean, honestly, it's one of my favorite testimonies of my whole life, the way the Lord has restored my relationship with my dad. But we have what we have now because of that, right? And I know many of you watching won't have that yet. Maybe you never will. Maybe your earthly father was terrible. Maybe he was abusive or neglectful or he just wasn't there. But God is a better father than that. And likewise, some of you maybe are on the other end of the spectrum and you had an awesome dad. And he was, you know, he was at every football match and, and choir recital and, um, you know, just told you he loved you every night and just you couldn't have asked for a better dad. But wherever your dad is at on the spectrum, whether he was a really terrible dad or an amazing dad, our heavenly dad, Abba, is way better. He, he actually promises us in Matthew 7 that he's better than any earthly father. So if you have a bad dad, he's better. If you had a great dad, he's better. And that's what he wants us to know him as. This good father. This father that that we can trust. This father that we can come to with, with whatever we need, whatever our hearts are longing for. Now, he's not just my dad. And he's not just your dad, right? He's our dad. He's our father. And it's really important when we pray that we recognize and acknowledge that, that he is our collective father, that we have brothers and sisters across the world, across nations and backgrounds and experiences and denominations and all of it that are all praying to the same father. And this is a level of unity and, um, and oneness that the Lord has been waiting for. And we read about it in John 17. So to set up John 17, uh, this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be betrayed and arrested and go to the cross. Um, he's, He's about to die for us. And this is the final recorded prayer we have that he prays for us. He prays it for you and me, for all believers. And it's in John 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is praying for us, for every believer, to be one the way him and the Father are one. Jesus is praying and prophesying that the global church will look like the Trinity that we will have that level of unification, 
that level of oneness. We're supposed to look like the Trinity, which is crazy. And I don't know about you, but I look at the world right now. I look at the the church, the global church right now, and I don't think we've done this. There are over 30,000 Christian denominations right now. And some of them very openly dislike each other. If you look at any Christian, like prominent Christian leader or pastor's social media, and you read through the comments, I can pretty much guarantee the meanest comments are going to come from fellow Christians. We we judge and we gossip and we harbor unforgiveness and we do everything except what Jesus asked for us and Jesus prayed. The very last thing he prayed was for us to be one and then we've spent the last 2,000 years just saying, oh, no, no thanks. I don't, I don't really want to be unified to that group. I, don't, I mean, have you seen that church? Ooh, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to be associated with them. You know, we, we pray and we say that we want revival. We say that we want for the kingdom of God to come, that we want earth to look like heaven. Do you know what heaven looks like? It looks like a family. It looks like every believer coming together as one. It looks like me and you and that guy in church you're jealous of and that, that pastor and church leader from down the road who, who said mean things to you and, and hurt your feelings. It looks like all of us coming together and worshiping King Jesus. It looks like every nation, tribe, and tongue coming together under the banner of his name. That's what it looks like. That's what... That's what Jesus is longing for. That's what we we say we're longing for. Because unity is essential to the gospel, this gospel we love. Because the gospel is about, about unity. It's about reconciliation. And we often think that it's it's reconciliation between us and the Lord. And it is that. That's the Father part of our Father, right? We're reconciled to Him. But the gospel is also reconciliation with each other. That's the our part of our Father. And I know this seems so hard and so impossible, but it's so important. And luckily, Jesus is really kind, and he tells us how it's going to happen. So he says in verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. So how does the global church unify? We recognize we have Jesus' glory. It's a supernatural thing, an amazing thing the Lord does, that if you are a believer, you carry the glory of God inside of you. You have his glory, his spirit beating and dwelling in you. But if that's true for you, it's true for every believer. And so this, when we recognize this, we have a, a mindset switch. And, and our, uh, you know, we, just, we switch kind of our way of thinking about this. That actually every believer has a piece of God. Every believer has a piece of his kingdom. And so I need to honor them. 
We recognize this glory of God in, in all the different expressions of him, and we honor them. Now, I've been a part of a lot of different denominations. Um, I'm obviously Vineyard now, but I've been everything from Southern Baptist to Holy Pentecostal. And I have found Jesus in all of them. And there's some differences in those. There's some, some pretty big theological differences. And I am not saying that we ignore theological differences. Sometimes there's really important theological differences about what we think about Jesus, about his kingdom, all of that kind of stuff. But I'm saying that we need to have, uh, Greg Stan says this, that we have unity in the essentials, dialogue in the differences. So unity in the essentials. There's certain foundational doctrinal things, things that make a Christian a Christian, things that we believe about a Trinitarian God, about who Jesus is, about what the cross has done for us. We have unity in those things so that where there are these sometimes really important theological differences, that we can honor them, honor our brothers and sisters, and have dialogue in them. Years ago now, I was leading a mission trip in, uh, in the States, and we were in Florida. And we were at a pretty conservative megachurch. And we were doing ministry, and everything was fine. And then we were doing ministry with the university students. And so I'm chatting with this girl, and we start talking about Holy Spirit. And she asks if I think she could have the gift of tongues. And I say, yes, absolutely you can. In fact, we're going to pray right now, and you're going to get baptized in the Holy Spirit, and you're going to get the gift of tongues. So we start praying. Holy Spirit falls. It's amazing. She's crying and, and shaking and encountering the fire of God for the very first time in her life. And then out pops the gift of tongues. So cool. It was great. Until the next day when her pastor calls me. And he was very upset with me. And he had gone ahead and canceled all the ministry that we had planned for the rest of the week. And we were supposed to be doing the youth group that night. And he said, you can come, but you only get five minutes with them. And you can only talk about foreign missions. So we went to this, this youth group. And it was all the, all the cool stuff, right? It was a great band and all the, you know, like current songs and all the lights and, uh, and even had a smoke machine. Like it was like everything you could want. And I'm looking at these kids and they're so bored. So I'm like, well, Holy Spirit, they just need to meet you. So I'm going to, I know exactly what I'm going to do, Holy Spirit. I'm going to go and I'm going to stand in the middle of this auditorium and I'm just going to worship. And I'm going to worship so freely that you're going to fall, Holy Spirit. And everyone's just going to break out. And it's going to be great. So I do this. And I go and I stand in the center of the crowd. And I just start worship. And I'm like, like undignified worship, right? I'm just like going for it. I'm like, you know, I'm just fully in the zone with Jesus. My teammate comes up to me. And I think we're going to have like this moment of solidarity, right? We're like taking down the spirit of religion. That's not what happened. She put her arm around me and she said, Sarah, they're really upset with you. They've asked me to get you to stop. 
oh. So I stopped, and I was so angry, and I was so sad, and a little embarrassed. And it took me, I don't know, probably years of processing that, to finally recognize that in that moment, I was in the wrong. And some of you hear that and think, obviously you were in the wrong, Sarah. That is so rude. I can't believe you did that. And some of you hear that and say, no, you weren't in the wrong. You are just trying to bring Holy Spirit in. That was great. That's what I thought. Because there are some moments where you do, you know, upend the, the tables like Jesus did in the, in the temple, where you try to take down the spirit of religion. But there is a right way to do that. There's an honoring way to do that, an honoring way to defer, an honoring way to rebuke even. And I did not do that with that church. Everything in my heart posture towards them was prideful and superior. I didn't serve them. I didn't prefer them. I didn't love them. And just think what could have happened if I did do those things. Maybe I could have gotten a piece of Jesus that was so unlike the piece of him I carry. Maybe, you know, vice versa. Maybe they could have gotten the piece of Jesus and his kingdom I carry and release. Rather than me basically getting run out of one of the biggest churches in the state. (laughs) But there's an honoring way to do this because we are called to honor our brothers and sisters. We are called to be unified with them. We are called to love them. And we know what love looks like because we quote it at basically every wedding you ever go to. 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's the love chapter. But that chapter was not written about marriage. And, you know, if, you've, if you had it at your wedding or if you want to have it at your wedding, it's a great passage. Like, I love it. You should use it. It's, it's about love. It's awesome. But the original context isn't about marriage. It's about church. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church where they were having a lot of issues and a lot of problems and a lot of division. And he's teaching the church how to love one another, how to take care of one another, how to honor one another. And I love the translation uh, in the Passion Translation where it's written, love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. Love does not brag about one's achievements nor inflate its own importance. Love does not traffic in shame and disrespect nor selfishly seek its own honor. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what is wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. Love never stops loving. Think of the way you interact with fellow believers. That might be within Coastline, within your life group. 
might be other believers that you, you run across from different churches, from different backgrounds. Have you, have you been those things? Do you get jealous when blessing comes to someone else? Have you taken offense? Do you brag about your own achievements? Have you been patient? Are you a safe place of shelter for your brothers and sisters? This is what we're called to. And if we can catch this, if we can learn how to love one another and be unified with other believers, to be unified like the Trinity is unified, we're going to see the greatest revival we've ever could imagine. Because John 17, that passage, it ends with a promise that when we are one, the way the Father and Jesus are one, then the world will know who Jesus is. Unity in the body of Christ is the greatest evangelism tool we have. And if we can really grab hold of this, this way of loving and preferring our brothers and sisters, not even the gates of hell can take us down. This is what Jesus prayed for. This is what he's longing for us to be. Jesus. But I know it's not easy. We're going to take communion in a moment. Jesus. But I want us to prepare our hearts for communion. Because communion is about unity with the Lord and with all believers. Jesus. So we're going to give some some space now. Um, Jesus. And we're going to see what God's saying to you. Jesus. And how he might be wanting to unify with you or have you unify with other believers. Jesus.